been looking at the book of Ruth, so if you want to go ahead and turn, there we'll be in Ruth chapter 3. Uh, I've entitled this sermon this morning, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. Is anyone familiar with that hymn? Has anyone ever heard that hymn? Okay. Um, it's one of the hymns that sort of gained some prominence with, with groups like Indelible Grace, um, sort of this RUF you know, if, if you don't know RUF, RUF is the PCA's campus ministry. But RUF began to do this type of worship where they would take hymns and they would sort of put them to modern music to try to bring some of these hymns back. And so, Oh Love That Will Not Let Me Go is a hymn that, that has come out of that tradition, or at least has been brought back. But let me read a couple of the stanzas for you. It says this, Oh Love That Will Not Let Me Go, I rest my weary soul in thee, I give thee back the life I owe that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer and fuller be. It goes on. O joy that seeketh through my pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. Um, I won't read the rest of it. It's a fascinating hymn if you ever want to read it. Um, The person who wrote it is a guy named George Matheson. He wrote it hundreds and hundreds of years ago. He said it took him about five minutes to write this hymn. You know, uh, we think about some songs have taken years, decades even to write. A song like Hallelujah, if you're familiar with that song, which is not necessarily a a church song. It's actually a secular song. Um, The history of that song is amazing. It took years and years to write. There's verses that were performed at one point. The writer rewrote the verses, performed different verses, uh, and it's become a number one song on the the billboard charts before in years past. This song took five minutes to write. But what's fascinating about this song is the occasion, and you'll see the tie into Ruth here in just a moment, but the occasion that the song is written on. So Matheson is a pastor. Uh, He is on the eve of his sister's wedding, and he is struggling. And the reason why he is struggling is because he himself has never been married. And so what had happened to him is that years earlier, he had been engaged to marry uh, this young woman. He was about 20 years old. And he goes to the doctor and gets word that he is going blind, that it's inevitable that soon in a few months, in a few weeks, he will be blind. And so he goes to his fiancee and he, he tells her this horrible news. And her response is, I'm sure it was a much longer conversation. But her response is, I didn't sign up for this life, and she broke off their engagement. So you you can imagine how if you're you're getting ready to go and be part of your sister's wedding, how it will bring up all of these emotions. And in five minutes, he writes, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer and fuller And so what I'm going to invite you to this morning is we're going to look at this idea of a divine love that will not let us go. So I want to challenge you guys with this because we may not have faced um, blindness. We may not have faced breaking off an engagement, but we all are facing things in our own life. We're all being challenged if we will trust God. So let's look at our text this morning Uh, I'll be reading again, Ruth chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, the her being Ruth, My daughter, should not I seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? 
It is not, is not Boaz your relative with those young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go, uncover his feet, and lie down. He will tell you what to do, she replied. Ruth said, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled, turned over. Behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? She answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this latest kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And she said, let it be, and he said, let it be known that, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest uh, until the matter is settled today. So first off, I want us to look at this picture of divine love. So one of the privileges I had was learning from in some incredible men uh, when I was in seminary. And one of the things they, they, that I don't feel like I understood when I went off to learn uh, was how the Old Testament and the New Testament are able to function together. And so what I want to do for just a brief moment, because I think it's really helpful here in our context, is for us to understand this idea of a picture of divine love, okay? And so different people have called it different things. Um, typology is a word you'll hear. You'll hear uh, shadows. You'll hear terms like this. Uh, probably the most, the most recently uh, well-known sermon that has been given on this or taught that's been given on this was in 2007 at the very first Gospel Coalition Conference, Tim Keller gave a sermon that has been shared over and over again 
where he talks about gospel-centered ministry. And if you want to read more about this or look into this deeper, um, that's a great place to start. But what he did was there a moment, there's a moment in that talk, and you know, many of these men are, are far smarter than I, so I'll give you their words. Uh, but Keller in that message begins this sort of walk through the Old Testament, where he begins to show Jesus showing up in all of these Old Testament stories. Now, how many of you, like me, grew up going to Sunday school, hearing Old Testament stories, had the felt board out, they put the felt board figures up, everything, you remember this? And mostly, we took those stories to be examples of what faith looked like, right? Here are men of faith who are exercising and trusting God in their circumstance. That's exactly what it is. But these are also pictures to begin to prepare us for who this Savior we're going to see today, who this Redeemer is, that is going to one day come. And so hear Keller's words. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passes the test in the garden, whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answers the call of God to leave the uncomfortable or the comfortable and familiar and go into the void, not knowing where he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac. Jesus is the true and better Jacob. Jesus is the true and better Joseph. Jesus is the true and better Moses. Jesus is the true and better Job. Jesus is the true and better David. And he keeps spelling all of these things out. And one of the things that you begin to see is if you know these Old Testament stories, there are these aha moments that you begin to experience and you go, oh wait, that's becoming something different for me. That's becoming something deeper. That's becoming something that I wasn't prepared for, you know. Uh, And so um, I didn't look it up. I should have looked it up. But you know, we could go back through how many times the New Testament references the Old Testament, how many callbacks there are as we get into the New Testament and these great stories. And so one of the things that you see, I want to tell you a brief story, which is one of my, my favorite stories. Uh, so J.R.R. Tolkien was known for being a procrastinator. Uh, it took him, he started The Lord of Rings, it took him 17 years to actually publish The Lord of the Rings. Now, it actually took even longer because that's just when he started to write the actual story. Before that, if you know anything about him, he wrote like a whole history of this world that he was going to write this story in. So that took him almost 30 years to do. And at one point, um, Tolkien was asked to write an article for a, uh, for a newspaper. And he had procrastinated, procrastinated. He had this deadline. And eventually, it was due the next day. And so he writes a short story called Leaf by Niggle. And in the story of Leaf by Niggle, Niggle's a painter. And Niggle uh, has this picture in his head of what he wants to paint. So he, has, he sees this beautiful landscape, and at the center of the landscape is this tree. And on the tree, you know, Niggle would get kind of hyper-focused. So he decides to start with the leaves, and he starts to paint. Uh, but Niggle also knows that his time is running out. And eventually, Niggle's time runs out, and all Niggle is able to get out is one leaf. But now, remind you, in his mind, 
this masterpiece he was going to create was this entire landscape. And so eventually, Nigel goes to heaven. And what does he see in heaven? He sees that landscape that he had tried to paint that was in his head. And Nigel forever feels as though he's failed at his attempt to do this. But what happens is some of the townspeople that live with him, the story's a little longer than the way I'm sharing it, but the townspeople who live with him, they, they find this one piece of his painting. They find this one leaf, and to them it is a perfect leaf. And so they take it into their museum, and they put it in their community's uh, museum, and it becomes one of their more prized possessions eventually. And one of the things I want to share with you is that as you and I look at some of these Old Testament stories, what I want you to picture them as as one leaf on a bigger tree. Okay, and so what God is doing is he is he is laying out the groundwork to explain to us who our savior is, who this Messiah is, who this baby that's going to be born in Bethlehem eventually is. And for us to understand that, he lays out all of these different things. So we're going to look at one of those today. So um, the second point today is this idea of human folly. So we've been following this, this story so far, and you have Naomi, you have Ruth, you have Boaz. You know, we, we have this scene back in chapter 2 where Ruth and Naomi have come back to Bethlehem. Uh, Naomi is a daughter-in-law. She's a Moabite. She's a foreigner. She has no standing in her community, right? And last time I was with you guys, we got to see her begin to try to help her mother-in-law. Now, the problem for her mother-in-law is that she's old. She's not really able to care for herself. She's not able to take a new husband who can care for her. And so Ruth becomes the one opportunity for Naomi to be able to have a life. Now, in their culture, there was this thing called a kinsman redeemer. And if you want to go back, it's in Leviticus Uh, Chapter 25 is where it spells out a lot of it. But this kinsman redeemer could do many things. One, they could redeem family land. So the Old Testament, uh, they had laid out, Moses had laid out these laws for the Israelites of how they were going to handle things. Uh, This is where you get things like the year of Jubilee, which you might have heard of. Uh, You get these different uh, traditions that they had. But the main gist was that the tradition was meant to keep the land in the, fa- in the family's hands, okay? And so one of the things you could do is have a near relative. So if, if a husband died, if a father of a family died, there was no husband left to care for the family, then a near relative could marry that woman and take on and redeem that land for that family so that one day his kids might have that land and it would be back in that family's name. And so you could do that. Uh, so you could redeem the land, you could redeem the spouse. Uh, it goes on to say things like you could even redeem um, being, ha- having paid for somebody's debts. So if you went to redeem them, you had to take care of all of the debts that they had. So this was a very big decision. And what we have in chapter three is we have maybe one of the more controversial uh, chapters in all of the Bible. Because I don't know if you picked up on it when we read it, but mother-in-law Naomi comes up with a very uh, risky plan for her daughter-in-law of how she is going to get Boaz and get his attention turned towards her. So we have this term where Naomi invites Ruth to go and find Boaz, wait until he has, you know, 
uh, finished his work for the night. So one of the things we talked about in chapter two was that there was a common field that everyone had, and they each each family would have different sections of that field. There was also a place called the threshing floor, which was a common area where the whole community would come, and they would go through this process of breaking off the, the chaff from their grain. So they would throw up the wheat, and it would crash down. So that's where we get this idea of this threshing floor, and it would, it would break it apart, and it would leave the good, it would leave the grain, and it would blow off all of the husks and everything that wasn't that wasn't important. And so Naomi comes up with this plan and she says, Ruth, here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna go to the threshing floor, you're gonna find Boaz and you're gonna quietly wait. And Boaz will, you know, he'll laugh, he'll talk to all the men, they'll work really hard. And then at some point he'll retire for the evening um, and, and he'll just find a place and he'll go to sleep. And so Ruth waits. And then we get the controversy. It says that Ruth uncovers his feet and lies down at his feet. And there are definitely different perspectives of this from different commentaries as to what is really going on here. Is this, is this something that is, um, you, you know, is, is Naomi giving Ruth a, an illicit way in which to entice Boaz? Well, one of the things I would say most scholars would say no. One of the things we know from the end of the story is that nothing happens uh, and so Boaz, we're going to see in a little bit, Boaz's integrity in this moment. But, but the question is still, what is Ruth doing? Well, one of the things I want to remind you is that we were talking about providence over the last few weeks, and we said that providence was God acting through human actions. And I want to remind you of one story from the Old Testament, which is the story of, of Joseph, right? And you remember when eventually Joseph has now gotten to a level of providence and in Egypt, his, his brothers had sold him, basically sold him out, literally. Uh, he had lived a very hard life. He had been in prison. He had lived very difficult. They had sold him into slavery. Eventually, that Joseph is now in a place of prominence, and his brothers come. They don't even recognize him, but they're, they're looking for food. They are in need now, right? The, the tables have turned. They're now the ones in need. And do you remember what Joseph says to them when he finally reveals who he is? He says the famous line of what you intended for evil, God has used for good. Do you remember this line? I think we can apply that here to Naomi. We don't know what Naomi's intent is as she tells Ruth to do this. What we do know, though, is the guy uses those actions by these two women. And so here's what I think the most straightforward reading of, of the text is. I think Naomi has sent Ruth to kind of um, put Boaz on notice, meaning to make sure everything's been communicated. Ruth, show him that you want him to marry you. Now, the question is, why is that? Why would Boaz not realize that? Because he is their kin. He, He could act as a kinsman redeemer for them. He could bring them into their family. Uh, He is not married But one of the things we see is that Boaz multiple times calls Ruth daughter. And so we believe that Boaz is actually much older than Ruth. So over and over, he says, my daughter, my daughter, my daughter. Matter of fact, in this text, uh, he winds up saying, you know, he, he says, your kindness has been greater than your first kindness because you haven't gone after, do you notice, younger men. 
Okay? And so we have at least two things to point to to believe that Boaz is much older. And he probably believes that Ruth should go off and marry someone much younger. And I think Naomi knew that. She knew that there was some hesitation in Boaz's mind. And so what does she invite Ruth to do? She says, Ruth, go and simply just uncover his feet and then lay at his feet. Now, now why would you uncover someone's feet when they were sleeping? What, what happens to you and I in the middle of the night? when our feet get uncovered. Maybe we rolled over and, right, the covers came off. Well, I don't because <laughs> I'm a pretty heavy sleeper. But um, a lot of people would wake up, right? You'd wake up. you start to feel a draft. You would, you know, you, you would wake up. And so Boaz wakes up. And who does he see lying there right next to him? Because where is he going to look when he wakes up? Because he realizes that, his feet are cold. Where's he going to look? He's going to look down at his feet. He's going to try to reach over and, and fix his, his blanket or whatever. And who does he find there? He finds Ruth there. And so they have this conversation. And one of the things I want to invite us to, so, you know, our attempt at love <laughs> is a difficult one, right? But let me ask you this question. When we talk about finding love, what are we really looking for? Hey, what is it we desire in that other person? How do we even know that we're in love? Because I think every one of us would admit it's more than just a feeling, that, that it's this great depth to it. So I want to give you five things that I think we are trying to say when we talk about we're looking for love. One is, I think we want to be fully known okay, by another person. We want to be fully known. And, and if we're fully known, then we also want to be fully accepted by them, both with our, with our positive traits and our negative traits, right? I mean, what, wouldn't that feel amazing if you could find someone that, one, desired to fully know you, but then two, as they got to know you, they didn't run away. They accepted you. But you know, there's even more. We, we desire a love where we're treasured so much that someone was sacrificed for us. Right? Isn't that a part of love? Well, I think it is. And then fourthly, we desire to be built up. We want that person to see the best in us. We want that person to invest in us. We want that person um, to speak kind words to us, to, to point out the good so that we might do that more. And then lastly, I would say we want that person to be committed. They're going to be there for us as we go through difficult times. Now, that's what we're looking for. And I think, too, that's what we desire in our own heart to be for someone else. But realistically, can we do that in and of ourselves? You know, one of the things I would say is that oftentimes we take matters into our own hand. So as we look at the, the folly of human love, so we have this divine picture of love, and then we look at our attempt at finding human love, it, there's often, very often, a disconnect. But I love in the scene, I love Boaz, because one of the things we see with Boaz is we see this level of integrity where Boaz, again, he looks, he looks down and he sees Ruth there. And we know that Boaz, or certainly the story leads us to believe that Boaz is attracted to Ruth, right? If you remember, he shows up at the field in chapter two and he says, who is that, <laughs> right? He like picks them out of this whole group of people. He says, who is that? And then even then, during his lunch, he spends time talking to her. He spends time with her. We see him investing time. But I think we see Boaz 
thinking initially that he's a father figure. He's a protector in the sense of how a father would protect a daughter, which is he calls Ruth daughter. But in this scene, we see that Boaz begins to realize that Ruth is actually, Ruth desires more from Boaz. So she invites him to be her redeemer. So the last piece I want to work at, look at is this idea of waiting for true love. So what does it look like to wait for God's timing on these things? What does it look like for us to, to be patient in these moments? Uh, I looked it up in anywhere between six months to a year. In the average lifetime, you and I spend waiting in line. Is that crazy? Now, I will tell you this. That was just physically waiting in line. Okay, I've waited in a lot of lines. I waited in a line in New York to try to get in to SNL one time. I've wait, I waited outside of, um, this one isn't the Paddock Mall. I don't remember the name of the Melbourne Mall. What is it? Square, okay. Um, I waited outside of that for a pair of Jordans to release. I did get that, I will say. Um, but I've waited in a lot of lines. People wait in lines for cell phones all the time. I can remember one time going to Barnes & Noble and there was this huge line out the door. And it was like 11.45. And I knew Barnes & Noble like closed soon. I was like, what is going on? You know what it was? The last Harry Potter book was coming out. People were waiting in line for the last Harry Potter book, right? We wait in line. Six months to a year of the average lifetime is spent waiting in line. Now, what that doesn't include, and here's what I did this week, have you ever called customer service? Because one, waiting in line is okay, because now we have iPhones. Like, you've already waited in line for your iPhone or for your smartphone or whatever. So now you have a companion to wait in line with, right? You have your phone. That's made it better for us. Uh, but when you're waiting on your phone and that music is just playing over and over, and if you're like me, the, the, the thing that I had to wait on this week when I called... Have you ever noticed that like every 15 seconds or so or every now and then they will break back in and you think, oh, they're going to answer? Nope. And they'll just tell you, you know, like, thank you for calling. We'll be with you as quickly as we can. And they have this repetitive, you know, little like voice that keeps telling you, we know you're here. We know you're here. Right? But we spend a lot of times waiting. Matter of fact, there's entire books written on the psychology of Waiting, and I think part of the reason why waiting for you and I is so hard is that we're not sure of the next steps, right? One of the hardest forms of waiting is there's one form of waiting when you know when it's going to be your turn. So partially, if you and I are waiting in line, we can look ahead of us, you know, there's X number of people. Okay, I see, you know, the pace at which this line is going. But have you ever waited for something where there is no real time limit, where you're not sure. It could be, you know, that day, or it could be months from now, right? That is a whole different form of waiting, and that is what we see in this chapter with Ruth and Boaz. Partially, they're going to have to wait, because Boaz's integrity tells him, there is another who is a closer kin than I. And notice what Boaz says. Basically, Boaz says, tomorrow, I will go and have a conversation with him, and I'll ask him if he wants to redeem you. And if he does, wonderful. God has provided for you and has provided for your mother-in-law. But notice what Boaz says. If he does not, 
I will do it. I will be your redeemer. And so we certainly hear in the same way that Niggle works so hard to paint this one little leaf that is representative of this perfect heaven that he's one day going to find himself in. We get this one little leaf of the one that comes for you and I. Now, what's really interesting about this story is that you really have three redeemers in the story. You have Boaz, which is kind of the main redeemer, but you also have Ruth acting as a redeemer. Okay, so think about this. How does Ruth act as a redeemer? Well, she actually winds up redeeming Naomi, right? She comes as a foreigner. She comes as an outsider. And she, you know, in that famous line in chapter one, she says, your people will be my people. Where you go, I will go, right? And do you know where where you've heard that before? Weddings. We use it in weddings. But it's actually Ruth saying it to Naomi. She does not say that to Boaz. She says it to Naomi. And she says, your people will be my people, your God will be my God, and where you die, I will die. She, she commits herself fully to Naomi, and she says, I will impoverish myself so that you might be cared for. And, and how does Ruth impoverish herself? She impoverishes herself by leaving her home. Like, I think it's real easy to forget that for Ruth to do what she does, even to have the opportunity to meet Boaz, Ruth has had to leave home. She's had to leave the place where she actually has some ability. She could go out and find a new husband. She could go out and remarry. She could go out and build a family for herself. She could have stayed in Moab, but she doesn't. She comes to this little town called Bethlehem. And we know who's gonna be born later on in Bethlehem, the ultimate redeemer. Jesus is gonna be born in Bethlehem. But the question is this. So you have Boaz as a redeemer who absolutely pictures Jesus' willingness to redeem us from our debts, but you also have Ruth as a redeemer. And how is Ruth a picture of Jesus? Do you know where Jesus left to be born in that manger? Have you ever thought of this? He left heaven. He left a place where the angels... Everyone around him knew who he was. He was praised. He was glorified. He was lifted up. He had no reason to leave that place. He's going to leave that place, and he's going to come to earth. And what is he going to experience on earth? The exact opposite of what he had experienced in heaven. He's going to be despised. He's going to not be believed. Can you imagine what the angels like looking down on the scene and they were like, what? How do they not believe King Jesus? How do they not believe him when he tells them who he is and what he's come to do? What is going on? Right, and so the angels are watching all of this happen. Right, and so what we see is we see Jesus who himself impoverishes himself, pushes away from all of the resources that he had in heaven in order to come for you and I. And we're going to see the finality of this uh, in two weeks when I'm back with you. And so I just want to close with this. Um, I want to give you three things that I think can help us in this process of us waiting. So whatever it is that you're waiting on, whether it is love, whether it's 
a new job, whether it's just for your circumstances to change. I want to give you three things. One, I think we see in Naomi that we can exercise wisdom, that planning is not a bad thing, right? Now, whether you fall on the different commentators of Naomi's sort of choices that she makes and this plan that she puts in place, whether Naomi is putting Ruth at risk in this sort of, um, you know, questionable way, or whether it is very, it's just trying to put Boaz on the spot and say, hey, I do love you. I do want you to marry me. Whatever it is, we see God using the plans of Naomi. So one, planning's not a bad thing. Two, be humble and wait. And I would encourage us to do this through prayer. But I think we see this through Ruth, right? Ruth over and over again. Do you notice what Ruth first tells her, mom, her, her, her mother-in-law when she gets back to her? She says, he gave me barley, right? But he's had a whole nother conversation with her. But one of the first things she says, like, she is just so humble throughout the story, is she not? She's so um, appreciative of what she gets through every stage. Now, she hasn't experienced that ultimate redemption, and not even yet has she experienced ultimate redemption. She's, Boaz tells her, we got to wait. We got to go talk to somebody else, right? There's another problem with our plan. But yet we see Ruth over and over again, humbly waiting for God to show his hand, to show what he's doing in her circumstances. And then the last thing I would say is wait with integrity. I think the hardest thing about waiting is us trying not to step in and do it all ourselves, right? And I think in Boaz, we see um, Boaz over and over again, he defaults to his own integrity and his own character. And so that's the challenge I've gotten this week as I've studied for this, and I hope that that is is a challenge for you. But the ultimate reminder is that we have a redeemer that God has sent for us, that the story of Ruth and Boaz is simply a reminder of our King Jesus that God sent to die on the cross for us. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful uh, for your work in our life. Father, we are, we are grateful that much like Ruth, uh, you left your home in order to come and rescue us. And Father, much like Boaz, you on the cross took upon yourself our debt that we owed and Father, you paid that through your death on the cross. But not only that, Father, you have, you have brought us in as sons and daughters. And so, Father, not only did you pay our debt, but then you also offered up through your life, you offered up your righteousness to us. So, Father, not only have we been redeemed, but we have been given ultimate worth, ultimate value through you. We are now sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. Thank you for that. Father, we pray now that you would fill our hearts with worship for all that you have done for us, that we would sing to the one uh, who sent his son to redeem us. Uh, And we pray these things in his name. Amen.